All right, welcome to RUF. We're glad you're here. And as always, uh, I begin by saying wherever you are, uh, we're glad you're here, whether you're struggling or whether you're doing great, uh, whether you're unsure about uh, this whole Christianity thing and you're skeptical of it, uh, RUF, we want it to be a place that you feel welcome. So, um, glad you're here this evening. We've been studying the book of Ephesians this semester. And if you've been here uh, the previous five weeks, you might have noticed something. You've probably noticed that the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter to the church in Ephesus, hasn't given us much to do yet. In fact, he's only given one command or one imperative so far, and we're up to chapter 3. And the only imperative that he's given is remember. He says, have you remembered? That's it. You know, if we're honest, that kind of bothers most of us. It kind of bothers me. Because I want to do something. Just tell me what I need to do so that I can get on and start doing it. We've been trained to think this way. That if we can just achieve more, if we can just earn our own way and prove to others that we are worth it. And even prove to God by our good works, God, look at what I've done. Isn't this good enough? Do you love me now? And so it's kind of part of our nature to want to do things. But in the book of Ephesians, if you have been here, we know that Paul spends the first three chapters and has spent the first three chapters telling us one thing, and that is that we need to drink deeply of God's grace. That we need to drink deeply of all that Jesus has done for us. And then, as we're going to see next week in chapter 4, 5, and 6, Paul starts to tell us what to do. He starts to give us commands. In fact, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul's going to give us 50 commands, 50 things we are, to, we are supposed to do. But look, in order for us to fulfill those commands or those imperatives, we can't do it. We have no capacity in and of ourselves to do all that Paul's going to talk about in the next few weeks unless we first go down deep and drink of the well of God's grace. To speak in grammatical terms, the imperatives, the commands always come after the indicatives, who you are, what Jesus has done, the incredible grace of God. It's always built upon that. We can never reverse that when we talk about the gospel. If you do, you will run yourself ragged. If you are not pursuing holiness out of God's grace and what Jesus has done for you and who you are in Him. Tonight we come to chapter 3 in Ephesians. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Please stand as we honor God's Word. And I'll read verses 1 through 3. Follow along with me as I read. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, 
When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light for everyone that is in the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's Word. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your scriptures, and we thank you that you work through them, that uh, through the preaching of your word, you change us, and you equip us, and you convict us, uh, and you correct our thinking, uh, and we pray that you would do those things tonight. Uh, please do that, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. If you need an outline... Uh, Please raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one. Uh, you should, there's some at the door. And if you can grab you can grab one, please get up. It's pretty laid back in here. So uh, that will not offend me at all. Look at verse 7. Let's start in verse 7. And let me just point out something. Paul starts or says in verse 7 that he's a minister of the gospel. Now, this is the Apostle Paul who we know from Scripture in the book of Acts is the one that hated Christ, hated and persecuted the church, but who was transformed by the gospel and by Jesus. This is the man who probably more than any other man in Jerusalem hated the Gentiles the most. And now, his heart has been transformed. And the one that hated the Gentiles now loves them and has actually been called by God to be an apostle, to be sent to go take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, the term apostle means sent one. And there is a sense when we, in which we can share in, in Paul's job as an apostle and there is a sense in which we cannot. Because you see, the office of an apostle, we believe, is not in operation in God's plan anymore. Because the office of an apostle required that you had a direct commission from Jesus himself. A direct word from Jesus. In order that you would represent him in his interest in preserving the Bible, writing the Bible, and in um, preserving and founding the early church. But there's also a sense in which Christians are sent ones. We are once commissioned to take the gospel to the nations, to spread the good news 
about Jesus. And I know that as soon as I say that, as soon as I say anything remotely close to evangelism or spreading the gospel, there's a couple of different reactions. Some of you, the defenses automatically go up. For the religious in the room, you're thinking, oh no, I just heard the word evangelism and now I feel guilty about all the people I haven't shared the gospel with and I haven't talked to about Jesus or all the people that I am supposed to. And so it just loads on guilt when you hear that word. For the irreligious or those that are skeptical of of Christianity, when you hear the word evangelism, you think of how you've been targeted and beat over the head by someone coming to you, trying to save you with this get saved approach and never really genuinely loving you and taking an interest in who you are as a person. Wherever you are tonight on that spectrum, we need to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say. We need to hear for two reasons. First, it's because, friends, Paul was never motivated by guilt to talk about Jesus. No one in the Bible was ever motivated by guilt to talk about Christ. So why should we? And then secondly, some of you are quite justified in your feelings uh, about the you know, the approach of beating you over the head and not really loving you with this get-saved approach. And uh, and so, you know, some of you have the right to feel that way. But I would say this, regardless of the messenger, could it be that you've missed something in that message, regardless of how it came to you, that really could change your life? Every single one of us in this room need to take a second look at this passage because there's something for all of us here. There are four things I want us to see, if you've got your outline, uh, that we need to understand if we're going to be uh, ministers uh, or we're going to spread the good news, if you will, like the Apostle Paul. The first one is we need to understand the mission of evangelism. Look at verse uh, 1 through 7. Paul begins by saying, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then look at, if you you have your Bible uh, and you're looking, I don't know if it's on the outline or not, but after verse 1 there's this big dash uh, in in the scriptures. And it's like a pause, like Paul, Paul gets distracted about something, and he's, what he's doing is he's starting to pray for this reason. We know that because if you look over at chapter 1, verse 15, Paul begins his prayer by saying, for this reason. And so Paul is starting to pray here. He gets distracted, and he doesn't pick back up his prayer to verse 14, if you've got your Bible and see the context. Because in verse 14, he starts right back with, for this reason. What distracts him? Why does his tension get diverted here? Well, in chapter, in verse 3, he tells us that he is distracted by this thing he calls the mystery. What is the mystery? Well, he tells us in verse 6. Look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Gentiles, he's saying, along with the Jews, 
have the same standing and get the same blessings from God and from the church. And I want you to notice, if you look in those verses, 1 through 7, you get the idea that he's not saying that there's some offshoot, some second class citizens in the kingdom, or in uh, as Christians, or in the church. But he's saying that they're equal heirs, equal members, equal partners, together. There's no inner circle and outer circle, like, oh yeah, it's just the Jews and the Gentiles, you're in, but barely. He's not saying that at all. There is no distinction here. We're all heirs. And we're all in this together. We all have the same standing because Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility. And so, there's no Jew or Gentile. It's Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, Greek or independent, Baptist, community church, Presbyterian, whatever denomination you're thinking of, college, educated, high school dropout, whatever, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, we're all members of one body, fellow heirs of the same a gospel and same kingdom. Friends, that's amazing. Do you see what Jesus has done? Jesus, because of what He has done, now the gospel is for everyone. It's for all people. It's no longer just about Israel, like it was in the Old Testament, and just for the Jews, but it's for the whole world. That's what we see here. And Paul saying, I'm a minister of that gospel. And if you're a Christian here tonight, you are a minister of that gospel as well. And we are to take that gospel to this campus, to this city, to this country, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, to the ends of the earth. Friends, missions is at the very heart of who God is. And the question before us tonight is missions at the very heart of who you are and who we are. Do you love the lost? Do you love the nations? If you don't, what's wrong? There's something wrong in your heart because that is at the very heart of God. You know, one of the ways we can grow in missions and this idea of evangelism and spreading the good news is to take a short-term missions trip. There's no better way to gain a love for the lost and a love for the nations and for what God is doing around the world than by taking a short-term missions trip. And I want to encourage every single one of you, before you graduate, make it a goal if you haven't already, and I know some of you are doing it this summer, But go to another country, an unreached people. Bring the good news there. See what God is doing in the world. And it will change your life. There's currently a group of students in RUF that are trying to organize local missions for us to be involved in. And also some missions overseas. And when that gets rolled out and we start talking about that, I want you to consider going. Consider how you can go with us to take the gospel and see what God is doing in the world. So the first thing we see there is 
the mission of evangelism. That's the first thing we need to understand. And secondly, the foundation of evangelism. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to have another M there, but I couldn't quite fit it in, so sorry. I had to go with the the foundation of evangelism. Look at verse 8. This verse contains one of the most uh, astounding phrases of what we see of Paul and how he views himself. Uh, There's something a little weird here that a lot of folks don't get because you kind of have to look at the Greek to really get what he's doing. Uh, But in verse 8, Paul, they kind of smooth it out, but Paul really butchers good language in verse 8. Technically speaking, he's basically saying, he says, I am the least of the least. And technically speaking, you can't be less than the least. And so Paul makes up a new word here to describe to us and tell us how serious he is about communicating how he views himself. And what he's saying is that he is the worst Christian there is. Of all the people in the church, of all the saints, Paul's saying, I'm the least. What's amazing is if we look a few years later, Paul's writing 2 Timothy, the last book, the last year of Paul's life. He was beheaded for his faith by Nero that year. And he writes to Timothy. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the worst of all sinners. Friends, that is the foundation for evangelism. It all starts with authenticity and humility. The only way you and I are ever going to be effective as we minister to other people is when we start to identify ourselves with Paul and say, That we are the least of the least. That we are the worst of all God, of all sinners. And here's how you'll know when you've identified yourself with Paul. You'll know that you've identified yourself with Paul because you'll start to look at the outcasts and the outsiders around you differently. You'll no longer be able to just walk by the homeless person on the street and do nothing. You'll no longer be able to just write off the socially awkward person on your hall or in your class or in the calf. You'll no longer be able to just let the person, uh, your friend that is struggling with sin or struggling with something big time, you'll no longer be able to let them just go through it alone. You know what else will happen? You'll grow increasingly frustrated with people who look down in their self-righteousness at others that don't seem to have it all together. Who put limits on God and His grace. Friends, the church is to be a safe place for sinners. RUF is to be a safe place for sinners. I heard a story a couple of months ago of a pastor that was at this conference in Florida and it was a conference on postmodernism and how we minister to a postmodern generation. And it was a week-long conference and every week he would, or every day he would go to the Waffle House across the street from this convention center. And so after the third day he had the same waitress because it was the same shift every morning Uh, And she finally says, what are all these pastors doing here? What's going on? He said, we're at a conference. And she goes, well, what's it about? 
And he says, well, we're trying to figure out why people stop going to church. She said, that's easy. I can tell, I could have told you that in five minutes. Less. And he goes, all right, why people stop going to church? And she says, because it doesn't feel like home anymore. The question before us is, do people feel at home around you and around me? Or do they feel like they somehow have to be on their best behavior for fear that they're going to be judged or looked down upon? Does the people outside this room, if they were to come in here, would they feel that this is home for them? Or would they feel that they're being judged or looked down upon? My prayer is that by the grace of God that people would see our authenticity and they would finally be able to start listening to us for the first time. Because listen, nobody will listen to us until we get this. Until we get that we are the least of the least. And that God in His grace reached down and saved us while we were dead in our sins. When we get that, people will start listening and the gospel will start going forth with a new power and a new authority. Okay, so we've seen that the message or the mission of evangelism, the foundation, and then thirdly, the means of evangelism. Look at verses 9 and 10. I want you to see here from this, the main thing I want you to take away is that the primary place in which God has ordained His message to get out is the church. The task of evangelism has been given to none other than the church. Not seminaries, not well-meaning institutions, but the church. Why is that important? Well, it's important because the church meets a huge need. This is what I want you to see. It meets a huge need in the evangelizing or the discipling of Christians. What is that need? Well, that need is you can't do it all. You can't do it all. Think about it. What if you were the sole influence, like you you know, talked to someone about Christ, and that's only exposure that they had was to you? What are you going to produce in that? You. <laughs> and it might be a good thing, but most of the time it's not. Uh, it, it could be good and bad. You know, you've got great things, but you've also got struggles. And so the, the important thing here is when we view evangelism as taking place inside the context of the church, it becomes uh, just vital because we see that we want to incorporate them in a body of people, not just me and this person, but a group of people so that they can go and the pastor can teach them about the Word. And the single mom can teach them about patience. And the little children can show them joy. And the 80-year-old grandfather can talk to them about wisdom and life. The former drug addict can talk to them about the power of the gospel and breaking us uh, out of our addictions and overcoming sin. 
the purpose or the primary means of evangelizing is through the church. Because it's through the church that people can develop holistically and mature into faithful followers of Jesus. Lastly, we see we need to understand the message of evangelism. Look at verse 8. Paul is talking here about the commission to preach to the Gentiles the message that, uh, and the message that he preaches to them is what? Jesus. The unsearchable riches of Christ. What's wild is that word there, unsearchable, literally means beyond tracing out. Like, it cannot be tracked how rich in the riches that we have in Jesus. He's saying that, guys, Christ is so vast and what we have in Him is so enormous that I can't even hardly talk about it. We can't even explore it and begin uh, to explore it. Paul was convinced that coming to Jesus was the complete opposite of being bored out of your mind. See what I mean by that? It was something immeasurably enriching. And so often I feel like we're bored with the gospel. We're bored with Christ. Aren't you curious? Aren't you just the least bit curious? And do you ever wonder that maybe we've missed something? Maybe we've missed something. And the very thing that we've missed could be the thing that could capture our imaginations the way nothing else has ever done. I've got a daughter. I've got two girls. You all know that. uh, My oldest is Kate, and she's two and a half. And in her short life, she has had many obsessions. And that's pretty normal. Uh, for uh, little girls growing up, and I'm sure normal for little boys as well. But her first obsession was with Dora the Explorer. And I thought she was moving on to Barney, but thank God she didn't. And I'm never going to let that happen, by the way. But uh, after, though Dora still has her Latin flair and can still hold uh, Kate's attention, she's actually taken a back seat to her new obsession which is the princesses. You know, uh, namely, Cinderella. Kate adores Cinderella and is obsessed with her. And I've talked to other uh, parents of young girls and they tell me that this is very normal and that I have nothing to be freaked out about. And they actually say that this obsession lasts the longest. And I believe that's true because now I've seen people my age on Facebook with these princess applications. Which princess are you? And I'm like, we've got a long way to wait on this obsession. Um, but she's obsessed. Kate, she's, she doesn't only have Cinderella 1, you know, the original. She's got Cinderella 2 on DVD, Cinderella 3. She's got coloring books. She's got hair clips. She's got lip gloss. And if you've seen my Facebook page, you've seen the picture with her with that lip gloss everywhere. And it's Cinderella lip gloss, which is supposed to be more special. Um, And she's got the Cinderella dress. And, of course, the Cinderella slippers that she wears around constantly. A few weeks ago, she told me that her name was not Kate. It was Cinderella. And so you can see 
She's obsessed with Cinderella. And as I thought about it, the more I realized that there's something to this. There's something about that that makes utter and complete sense. Because you see, the princesses are adored. They are prized. And though the stories start, and it might be a little dark at the beginning, it was for Cinderella, things weren't going well. At the end, she was loved well, and she lived happily ever after. There was a happy ending. Isn't that what we all want? Think about it. Deep down in your heart, isn't that what you want? You know, Kate, she couldn't verbalize any of the things I just shared with you. But her obsession with Cinderella flows out of the way she's built. It flows out of something deep within her heart and deep within your heart. Because there's this longing, friends, inside every single one of us to be loved with this indescribable love that results in a happy ending. What if that really were true? What if there really was a happy ending to the universe and that you could play a part in that happy ending? What is true? Friends, you were built for an eternal love. A love that can only come from Jesus. A love that will never end. Will everything that is sad come untrue? For those that have Jesus, absolutely. Girls, the fairy tales are true. Guys, the old adventure tales that you used to read growing up and watch... They're true. Because that's Christianity. That's the message that we need to share. That's the good news that has to be told. Will you let that grip your heart and send you out into the world to share the incredible good news about Jesus? You think about that. Let me pray.